So before John comes up to speak, we're going to hear Esther's story. Good morning. It's uh, great to see. It's great to hear people's stories. Um, I was actually there at that evening. I've got to tell you, the food was amazing. Neil spoke about groups involving food. Yes, let's do that. The food was absolutely amazing, all these dishes from different nations, but I haven't got time to talk about that. We're here, week two of our Invited series, and um, before I get into the the theme for the week. I do just, on the back of what Neil just said, really want to encourage us in this. 
to, for all of us to use this, to really get into using this. Because, you see, we really do want this series to be a lot more than just a series. That it would be something that shapes us as a church. Something that shapes our mindset as a church and, and, and genuinely changes us. And the way that happens is through what we do off the back of it. It's not just a Sunday thing, but what we do in between. And this is a really important part of that. So do have a look through it. Do read the introductory pages. There's some important information in there. There's a page in there about the hospitality challenge that Neil mentioned last week. So have a read of that and then let's do it. Let's, let's, let's go for it. Let's get inviting. Let's be practical about this because when we do that and open up our homes to each other, we will build genuine friendships and genuine community and togetherness and understanding across different age groups, across different cultures across all sorts of different groups. Use the daily devotional readings. It's not too late to catch up. We're just in Acts 5 today. Use them. This will take you through the whole book of Acts. It's an amazing story to read. And just spend time in the passage and say, you know, think, God, what are you saying to me today through this? Whether it relates to the notes that are in here or not, what are you saying to me? And then use the notes section on each page to write down what you feel he's saying and, and what strikes you. And then find opportunities to discuss this with others. Whether that's in your small group or it's just with a, meeting up with a couple of friends every week or every couple of weeks to discuss your reactions to what we've been talking about and to what you've been writing uh, in here. You have the questions for reflection, you've got topics for prayer at the start of each week in here to help you with that. The point is there is real power when we do something like this together as a church and it goes beyond a Sunday when we immerse ourselves in something together. And so I just want to really encourage you to make the most of that book. It's an important part of the series. Now, Neil started off last week with Acts chapter 8, um, Philip and the Ethiopian. And that was a great example of cross-cultural mission um, and the gospel going to the ends of the earth, um, as was said in the beginning of the book of Acts, as we heard this morning. This week, we're going to be starting in Acts 13. But we're not staying in Acts 13, we're going to kind of go everywhere, we're going to go all over the place, because the aim is to show that actually diversity and considering diversity is not just a fad, it's not just a current trend or an attempt to be relevant to the world, but that actually diversity has been on God's heart right from the very beginning. He's been into diversity from the beginning, his desire has always been for his blessing to go to all nations and to form a diverse community of worshippers. Now, obviously, not every church can be racially diverse because it depends on your context, depends on the community that you live in. But as Neil said last week, this is an area in which we have been tremendously blessed. All three of our Sunday meetings are diverse. And clearly, Wickham Town Centre is more diverse, greater level of diversity than you have in Hazelmere because that reflects the communities in which those sites are located. Having said that, though, I was just thinking about it this week. Off the top of my head, I can think of at Hazelmere people who are from Britain, Ireland, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, Romania, Canada, South Africa, Cyprus, Guadeloupe, Spain, America, Netherlands, India, and Sri Lanka. And there are probably others who, are, who I haven't thought. I mean, it's astonishing. It is absolutely amazing, and it's wonderful, and it does, of course, bring challenges of building community, hence this series. So Acts chapter 13, I'm just going to read the first three verses. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them 
and sent them off. Now, why read that seemingly very small passage from Acts 13? The reason is, this is a really highly, highly significant moment. In the previous chapters in Acts that lead up to chapter 13, uh, we see that the gospel has been going out predominantly among Jews and to different nations, but predominantly Jews. But it has started to go to Gentiles. The church there here in, here in Antioch is a Gentile-majority church because some Gentiles have started coming because they've been scattered through persecution out of Jerusalem. And, and so the gospel has started to go out to the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. And you'll read about all this as you work through the daily devotions. Also, next Sunday, we'll be focusing on chapter 10, which is the story of Peter and Cornelius, which is a, another a highly significant moment in the gospel going to the Gentiles. But we can't miss the significance of this prayer meeting that we just read about, this prayer meeting at the church in Antioch. Antioch's in modern-day Turkey, so this is to the north of Israel. Because this prayer meeting is really one of the prime reasons that we are here at all, that, we, that we're here today. Because it was here that the intentional mission to the Gentiles really started. As Paul and Barnabas are sent off on that apostolic mission. And they would go on to plant and establish many churches in the Gentile world. It's because of them the church came to Europe. And so it's a very significant moment. You'll read about all this as you read through Acts. But this is the gospel going to all peoples. This is the gospel going to all nations. See, up to now, up to this point, God's people were the Jews. But now we see the Gentiles, the scope of God's people is massively expanding because the Gentiles are now being included. Not, not only included in the people of God, but people are going out actively, intentionally on mission with the gospel to seek them, to bring them in, to welcome them, to invite them in to the people of God. So it's significant. Now the other significant thing about this prayer meeting is easily missed. It's the diversity of the leaders. So you've got Barnabas, who is a Cypriot Jew. You've got Simeon, who many scholars have concluded was a black African. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, so he's most likely a West Asian Jew, but certainly being brought up with Herod, he comes with a certain social prestige. And then there's Saul, who becomes Paul, who is a Jew from Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing it's so easy to miss as you read through Acts, but this is a diverse group of leaders. And that is something that would continue throughout church history with the early church fathers and other very influential thinkers and uh, Christian, who, shapers of Christian doctrine, because the center of Christianity, so where Christianity at a particular time is predominantly exploding and growing very rapidly, that hasn't stayed in the same place. It's shifted around the world in different places in different times. And so, for example, some of the most influential early church fathers, you may have heard of some of these, you may not, but people like Oregon and Tertullian and Athanasius and Augustine. I mean, you must have heard of Augustine. They're all African. Then you've got people like Ignatius and Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, John Chrysostom. They're all from Asia. These are important, influential people. And then later on, people like Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther, John Calvin, they're all Europeans. So this diversity is, is built in right at the heart of church history through the ages. But we also see diversity throughout biblical history. So I just want to take a kind of a, a, a quick-fire tour through the Bible to have a look at that. So if you go right back to the very beginning, when, uh, when God created the heavens and the earth and creation happened, we see a really important element of human diversity built right in there at creation as God creates them male and female. He creates them equal 
but different. And I know, of course, there will be some in our day who would claim that there is no difference, that gender's meaningless and all the rest. You know, I'm not going to go down that line, but, but, but that there isn't a difference. The implication being that difference is somehow bad, and of course it's not. Difference is good. Well, in God's purpose, anyway, in God's design, difference is a good thing. It's, it's, it's intended. Men and women are created equal but different. They're created to complement one another. They're created to be stronger and more complete together than individually. So this is an early example of human diversity, but also of God's view of diversity, how he sees diversity, his plan for diversity, which is to have unity within diversity, but that doesn't ignore the difference. You don't lose what is difference in that unity. It celebrates difference while experiencing unity. Equal but different. One flesh but different. Do you know there's also the fact that Adam and Eve don't represent a particular race. And I think that's important to say because actually in the past, the Bible, particularly the early chapters of Genesis, have been horrifically misused to justify things like the slave trade. So the so-called curse of Ham that comes out of Genesis 9. It's just a misuse of scripture to justify evil. You've got to know, Adam and Eve are not identified as white or black or Semitic or anything. He's just called Adam, which means man or humankind. And so they represent all humanity, all humankind, in all its future diversity that would come equally all humankind who are made in the image of God. Fast forward to Genesis 10 and 11. Tower of Babel, the, the table of nations. I spoke on this back in December to finish off our diversity series. Here we see that the nations, people groups, languages, diversity, it's all part of God's plan. It was always part of God's plan. He told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, fill the earth. He told Noah, go and fill the earth. It was always part of his plan, his design for the earth to be filled with people reflecting the glory of God. And part of that glory is reflected in our diversity. Because God himself is diverse. He's Trinity, three in one, diverse, and completely and perfectly united. It was always God's plan. Diversity is not some evolutionary accident. It's a gift. And it's God's purpose. It's only been made into a problem by sinful human beings. See, the scattering that happened at Babel, that wasn't the punishment. That wasn't, that wasn't the judgment. It was the plan. It was always the plan for people to spread out and fill the earth. The judgment, the punishment, was that it was done in confusion and division and conflict rather than in joyful obedience to God's command. And that has brought long-standing ramifications and problems of conflict between different people groups. Then into Genesis 12, where the story of God's people really begins with Abraham. Right at the start of this story, where God is saying, this is, this is basically God is saying, this is my plan, this is my unfolding plan of salvation to save the world. Right at the very start of this story of God's people, God makes a foundational promise to Abraham. He, he promises things like land, he, descendants to be a great nation, that he would be blessed. And actually the rest of the Bible is the outworking of this promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12. But the culmination of that promise is that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, through Abraham. All peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. All nations, all families, all clans, all tribes, all people groups, everyone is invited. Everyone. 
promise is right there at the very beginning of the story. It was always God's plan for blessing and salvation to go to the whole world, to all nations, in all their diversity through Israel. The same promise is repeated to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And it's a promise that's repeated again and again throughout Genesis. And we see it happening. We see other nations starting to be blessed by Abraham's family. So, for example, Joseph. How God uses Joseph means that Egypt has food during a really severe famine. This is actually what turns Egypt into a superpower in the world, in the ancient world. Egypt becomes a superpower because of how God uses Joseph. The nations of the earth being blessed through Abraham's family. But probably the first person we see actually invited in to the people of God from outside is Hobab, who is Moses' father-in-law. They're in the desert. They've come out of Egypt. They're in the desert. Moses says to Hobab in Numbers 10, if you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. This man is not a Jew. He's not descended from Abraham, but he is invited in, into the people of God. Later on, as Israel goes into the promised land, they go into Canaan and they occupy the land. We see others added in. You have Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. She's a Canaanite woman. Later on in the period of the judges, you have Ruth. Ruth is from Moab. These are both outsiders who are invited in to God's people. Not only are they invited in, but both of these outsider women are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus at the start of Matthew's gospel. I mean, it's, it's incredible that that would happen like that. These outsiders, and not only outsiders, but women in that time to be mentioned in the genealogy. Later on, when David is the king of Israel, we come across people like Uriah the Hittite. He's a Hittite. He's not a Jew. He's, he's a soldier in David's army. And he's, a, he's clearly a prominent guy, a prominent soldier, because of who he's married to. He's married to Bathsheba, who we know lives very near the palace, maybe within the palace complex. And that leads to other problems. But clearly, Uriah is a prominent guy. He's not a Jew. And then there's somebody called Obed-Edom. He's not a Jew. But the Ark of the Covenant, no less, rests in his house for three months and his whole household are blessed. And we see in 1 Chronicles that Obed-Edom, this Gentile, ends up becoming part of God's people as a priest. One of the priests and Levites. It's staggering. And then we come to the time of Jesus, the New Testament. Jesus is born as a Jew and the majority of his ministry while on earth was to the Jews. And sometimes he makes that very clear. But we see him rewarding the faith of a Canaanite woman a Roman centurion. He heals a man in a region where pigs are herded, which means that this guy is a Gentile. So when Jesus encounters people from outside of God's people, he effectively invites them in. But look at who he hung around with as well. He hung around with the outcasts. People like Levi, the tax collector, and Mary Magdalene, and Zacchaeus. These are, even though they're Jews, you're not supposed to associate with them. They're outsiders. They're outcasts. Other people would seek to stop them coming in and their sort but Jesus invites them in. It's Jesus who says in Luke 13, 29, this is the verse on the front of the invited books, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. You know, east, west, north and south, that just means everywhere. Everywhere. People will come from everywhere and take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's Jesus who gives the great commission Go and make disciples of all nations. This is going right back to the promise made to Abraham at the beginning. And Jesus saying, now go and fulfill it. Go and make disciples of all nations. And just before he ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Everyone, everyone is invited. 
See, God's heart for diversity is clear throughout biblical history. We see people invited in throughout biblical history, but, but until we get to the book of Acts, it's not really diversity that we're seeing in God's people. It's not true diversity, because diversity is really about many becoming one even in and through all of their differences. The differences are still there. The differences are not lost, but there is a oneness even in the manyness, even in the differences. And that's an expansion of what I was talking about before with male and female. He created them male and female, one but different. The difference doesn't take away from the oneness. In fact, it's a crucial part of that oneness, and the oneness doesn't take away from the difference. That is diversity. Up until the book of Acts, we see some individuals being allowed to join God's people, but to join God's people, you would have to become like them. You would have to imitate them through being circumcised, through obeying Jewish laws, all the various laws, the food laws, all of those kind of things, and essentially living like all Jews were supposed to live. That's not really diversity, that's conformity. It's different, where Gentiles can worship God as long as they behave and become like Jews. It's what Paul is so angry about when he writes to the Galatian church. You know, people have been coming along to these Galatian believers and saying, no, no, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the law of Moses. He's furious about it because he's saying, that's not the gospel I brought to you. But in Acts, we start to see true diversity where both, just the beginnings of it, where both oneness and manyness are celebrated. There's one God, there's one faith, there's one baptism, but there are different styles and different cultures and different languages. We see the gospel starting to go to the ends of the earth. We see agreements made that Gentile believers don't have to become like Jews in order to be in the people of God. See, where you have oneness, but not manyness, you have oneness without differences, it's, it's conformity, and it gets a bit monotonous. So I don't know about you, but I have sat through many primary school music performances. Um, brass, recorders... Um, and they're playing a tune, but they're all playing the same note, if you're lucky. And of course they are, because they're early in they're learning the, the musical instrument and all of that, and so they're not going to do anything particularly complex. They're going to be playing a basic tune, and they're all playing the same tune. And so they stand there with their trumpets. Like, oh, that's lovely. Uh, you know, your child is there, and so of course it's lovely. You're very proud of them, and you're watching them, but it does get a bit boring. Or is it just me? Am I very bad for saying that? It gets a bit monotonous, particularly if your child isn't there. It's really boring then. You have no reason, literally no reason to be there. So when you have one but not many, everyone playing the same tune, it's a bit monotonous. But if you have many but not one, you have everybody doing their own thing. Well, now that sounds like the music lessons that I used to teach when I was a primary school teacher. Uh, it was horrendous. I used to avoid it if at all possible. It would just be, let's let the children express themselves. And it just produces the most unholy cacophony. It's horrible. Horrible, horrible noise. So we have many, but, but not one. That's not good either. But when you have one and many, then you get a symphony. And it sounds like this.
See, in a symphony, you have different sounds, you have different instruments, you have different notes being played at different times, but they're all working in harmony around the same overarching piece of music to produce something which is beautiful, and it's together. But of course, a symphony doesn't just happen. They don't just turn up and play like that. It takes a lot of, well, apart from the talent that's needed in the first place to, to play the instrument, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice to get to that kind of standard, trying to understand the music, interpret it, understand your part in it, how what you are doing, the particular sounds and notes that you play on your instrument, how that fits in with the whole piece, how it contributes to the whole, how you interact with somebody else who plays a different instrument, different sounds, different notes. And I imagine in practice that leads to times when it goes wrong and you get some jarring notes, you get some clashing notes where someone plays the instrument at the wrong time or uh, the wrong note is played at the wrong time. But the same is true of diversity in the church. It can lead to challenges, it can lead to misunderstandings. I mean, we see it in the early church in the Bible. Things like, you know, well, we've got all these people in the church who aren't circumcised. Well, what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? Or how can we eat together because they eat pork and I find eating pork disgusting. So how do, we, how do we do that? These are diversity problems, diversity challenges. We see a really big one in Acts chapter 6 with the Grecian Jews complaining against the Hebraic Jews. They're, both, they're all Christians, but the Grecian Jews complaining against the Hebraic Jews that their widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. This is a diversity problem. This is a cultural, ethnic challenge which leads to feelings of injustice. This is dangerous for the church. This is the early church. This is potentially derails the church. But the solution they find is beautiful. The apostles meet the challenge head on. They, they, they don't ignore it. They acknowledge that there's a problem. And they appoint leaders to oversee the distribution of food to both parties. But the beautiful thing is that all the leaders who are appointed have Greek names. And so the offended party are given the responsibility for the distribution of food to both parties and we see the reconciliation that happens but not only that we see the result of this reconciliation in the very next verse in verse 7 where it says so the word of God spread so because of all of that the word of God spread the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly the jarring note the clashing note it was corrected they learned from it and the resulting symphony just drew people in because it was so beautiful the community they had was so beautiful. Diversity does and will bring challenges. I mean, it could be that there are historic, deeply historic um, tensions and mistrust between different people groups or cultural misunderstandings where you unwittingly offend somebody because you just don't understand the cultural context or their culture. And it can be things like cultural preferences, like the length of the Sunday meeting. For some people, it might be too long. For other people, it just feels way too short. Or how we pray or how often we pray or the type of music, the songs we use, all of that kind of thing. Diversity brings challenges, but we are to work it all out like they did here in the light of the cross, in the power of the cross. Because first and foremost, we are to remember that we are all saved by grace through faith. All of us, regardless of your nationality or your background or your culture, we were all sinners. We were all in the same boat and we've all been brought near. We've all been forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus. And so we are all one in Christ. Now, Ephesians 2 makes it very clear. Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles when he says that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two one. The two, Jews, Gentiles, he's made them 
one, and he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now you've got to understand, the depth of the division between Jews and Gentiles is huge. If he does that, if the gospel does that with Jews and Gentiles, then that extends to divisions between all peoples, regardless of how deep the division might be. It's that vertical reconciliation that he brings with God that gives us the power for the horizontal reconciliation in human relationships as that dividing wall is smashed to pieces. It's obliterated by the gospel, by the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the cross, the resurrection. It is smashed to pieces. And not only is the hostility removed, but Paul goes on to say that we are all building blocks for God's glorious temple with Christ as the cornerstone. It's like when Peter says elsewhere, We are living stones. We're living stones of different shapes, different sizes, different colors, different types, but we're all living stones being built together into this glorious temple. We are all one in Christ. And do you know what that means? See, I think this means actually a pretty major shift in mindset for many of us. Because because what it means is that this, what we're doing here, what we're doing in the church with this invited series, It means that this is not predominantly about white people welcoming black people into our white church. It's not about British people with a British culture welcoming non-British people with a non-British culture into our British church. Of course, yes, we're located in Britain and the roots of the church are predominantly with white British people. It's not to despise that, but the point is this. We are all outsiders. Every one of us is an outsider who has been invited in, allowed in by Jesus to come and sit at his table. That's what we do together. We come and sit at his table. This isn't a Jew-Gentile situation where the Jews are the insiders, the white British are the insiders. Everyone else is an outsider who's now being welcomed in. No, no, no. We're all outsiders and we've all been welcomed in by Jesus. It's really important that we get that. We're all one in Christ. We're united around his song. So this is about finding and establishing kingdom culture among and through all the beautiful, wonderful, diverse cultures that we have here in this church. While not losing all the different cultures, while not homogenizing everything, it's about finding kingdom culture and how all those cultures play parts, different parts, different notes, different instruments in creating this beautiful gospel symphony that tells the world, actually it doesn't just tell the world, it shouts to the world about the beauty and the power and the glory of God. So what we build here and how we build together in partnership with Christ is just so important. And, you know, we've got a long way to go. We know we've got a long way to go in things like lack of diversity in in our leadership and in, in many things, maybe our worship style, prayer, all sorts of areas, we know that. But how we go about building together is so important because when we have unity, gospel unity, the world looks in and says, that's impossible. That is impossible. It says in Ephesians 3 that it was always God's intention that the, the church would display his manifold wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, the multicolored wisdom of God displayed to the world. The world looks and says, how is that possible? All these different cultures and people groups with all the hostilities and tensions that exist between them, how is that possible? It shows the power of God at work in the church. And anything less than oneness between God's people actually makes the gospel look untrue. 
because it's like there are still dividing walls there. It's unity without uniformity and diversity without division. That has been God's goal all along because it displays his glory. Let me finish with this illustration. God's people are a bit like the Amazon River, okay? And not because it's filled with piranhas. Um, The source of the Amazon is reckoned to be a small river in Peru. Just starts a little trickle in the mountains of Peru. And you wouldn't recognize it as the Amazon River. And it's a bit like when God starts his people with Abraham, an old man and his old wife and no children. And he says to them, all nations will be blessed through you. And you think, that's, you know, this, this pitiful little trickle of people, there's no hope here. That's ridiculous. It's a bit like you know, looking at the Amazon River, this, this little river in Peru, this little trickle, and saying, through you, all of South America will be watered. And you say, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. Don't be so silly. But as the river starts to wind through Peru and it gets into Brazil, well, it starts to grow. And it starts to widen and it starts to shape the landscape around it. And as we wind our way through Genesis into Exodus and then through the rest of the Old Testament, it's what happens with Israel. At the start, there's just a handful. By the end of Genesis, there's 70 of them. But then as we get into Exodus and onwards, they have grown so much that they start to be noticed. And they start to shape the world around them. But when the Amazon reaches the Brazilian rainforest, that is when things really start to kick off. And it's a little bit like when we get to the ministry of Jesus and the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. The baptism of the Holy Spirit comes. All these other rivers and tributaries, they start to join and flow into the Amazon from all different directions and all different sources. It's what happens in the gospel in Acts as different nations start to be added in, different people groups start to be added in, the Gentiles start to be added in to this river of God, to this torrent of God's purposes. So there's a massive expansion in the people of God and it's still happening today as these different rivers and tributaries, as different people groups are reached and they join in this mighty river of God and they, 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 they all come into the river. See, these tributaries that come in, they don't just come in and stay in their own separate little channels. No, they join the river. They become part of the people of God while retaining the history of where they came from. But we become one in our diversity as we join in this mighty river of God. And here's the thing. By the time the Amazon reaches the Atlantic Ocean, it is so big, it is so powerful, that it turns the salty ocean water fresh up to 200 miles out to sea. Isn't that a great picture of the church? And what the church is, what the church can be, what the church will be. It's what John sees in his vision in Revelation 7. He says, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. And they're from every nation, from every tribe, every people, every language. And they're standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they're crying, salvation belongs to our God. He sees one people, one huge, massive people who are still many. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And he sees many who have become one. This is the church that Jesus is building. This is what he's building. This is what he calls us into, to build with him. What a privilege. This is where we're heading. This is the glorious symphony, the the big story of God that we're all part of, the, the gospel song that we're all caught up in. And so let us honor God by building well together. It's honoring to him when we do that, when we overcome the jarring notes, when we overcome the tensions, build well together. Let us declare his glory to the world Turn the salty waters fresh by building together 
well. We are all one in Christ. Everyone is invited.